The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Kim Elizabeth Herrschaft, was born and raised in Maine. She's a military wife married to a 30-year Coast Guard veteran, and her husband was deployed for about 15 years total while their children were growing up. They were living on a military base in Satellite Beach, Florida, when she became critically, uh, critically ill in 1996 with an overwhelming infection. The medical team uh, that treated her said she shouldn't have survived. It was so bad. She was told anything that could have gone wrong with the human body had happened to her. And during that time, she had her NDEs. She said they left a profound imprint on the way she lives and thinks. After her NDE experience, her husband's command made it possible for them to move back to Maine in 1998. And Kim has worked in several hospitals since her illness and one uh, as an administrative coordinator with social services and spiritual care. Kim, welcome to NDE Radio. Hello. Welcome. It's uh, good to hear your voice. You know, I think you may be the first person I've entered. No, not the first. Peter Panagor was probably the first. You're the second person I've interviewed from Maine, from uh, oh, wow. from my my little perch on Penobscot Bay. So, Kim, you were... 31, living on a military base in Florida with two young children. Mm-hmm. Your husband was underway on a Coast Guard cutter off the coast of Cuba, and you got really sick. So tell us what happened then. Well, I wasn't feeling well when he left, and I was being treated for a sinus infection that just was persistent, and the doctor kept changing the antibiotic, and I wasn't responding to it. And so when my husband left, it it was, I guess, maybe a week later, I started developing more severe symptoms. And I kind of um, was able to diagnose myself. I kind of suspected, you know how you, the, the military used to give us these books where you could go through your symptoms and it come and it came to the conclusion of what it could be. And you don't want to be that person to go to the worst case scenario. So I was like, "Eh, it's probably not that, but um, I had the photophobia and the pain in my neck and I went to my doctor and she said, Oh, it's just a neck strain. Here's some muscle relaxers, but let me look in your ears and things didn't look too good in there. And she's like, well, we should probably do some sort of test on your eardrums because they don't look normal. And, and I kind of just said to her, "I, I don't have time for this today. I'll have to come back for that. And so I left with my muscle relaxer and I took it that night. And the next morning I woke up feeling really strange and I hadn't really taken a lot of them. I just, it didn't really help my neck. So I didn't really think it was the residual of that because I had taken it early enough the night before. Got in the car, took my kids to school and to daycare and went to work. And I guess my coworkers, I worked in a doctor's office. They looked at me and said, you don't look good. Go sit out back in the lab. So Mm -hmm. I did. And um, they said, I kind of just put my head down. And about an hour later, I got up and just walked out. 
drove my car home and I don't have any re- recollection of this. Um, and then when I got home, I took my temperature and it was 103 and I called um, the clinic at the base so that I could be seen. I didn't want to go to the emergency room because I had some bad experiences there. Um, mm. So I waited until one o'clock to have my appointment. And by then I was really bad. And I walked in and I could barely, I called my friend and I asked her if she could help care for my children. Um, could you pick them up from daycare and, and school? And uh, I was really, I'm not one to ask for help. I'm very proud and I'm kind of a tough cookie, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, and I, I, she knew something was wrong when I, just by listening to me and she said, I'm, I'm leaving work now. And she worked at the local college right by my house. So I ended up from there, I was so dehydrated. They had to give me three bags of IV. I just remember sitting in the waiting room and them thinking she's got something contained. It was meningitis and they kind of cleared the room and uh, made everyone leave the waiting area because they were afraid of, you know, somebody getting exposed and whatever. And so by then I just said, can I please just lay down? And they found me a a stretcher I could lay on. And um, I just kind of slept and slept and slept. And they kept like waking me up and asking me questions. I just couldn't stay awake. Then the the doctor came in and said, we're sending you to the hospital across the causeway in Melbourne because uh, we don't know what to do. And we've called an ambulance. You're very sick. So that was that. I don't remember much. I was in and out and they, they did a spinal tap. They told my friend that I would be admitted that night. So could she please take care of the children and try to get in touch with my husband? And of course he's out of the country. There's no communication. There's no calling. There's no, we didn't even have email then. Mm. So my mom knew about it and she found out. So she was en route to Florida from Maine. Then I was supposed to be admitted, but because of, if you know, the hospital system and, during that time of year in November, it's snowbird season. Well, I got sick in October, but it's snowbird season. So all, you know, the, it, the hospital was bogged down. So they, they didn't have any beds. It was during, you know, it's during flu season, the kickoff of flu season and stuff. So they didn't have any available beds. So they told my friend in the middle of the night, come get her. She, we don't have a bed. So we're just going to have her rest at home. Oh, for and my friend sake. was, <laughs> yeah. And she was very, very upset. And she kind of went up one side of them and down the other. And she had to t- get my kids out of bed and come get me in the middle of the night. And she was talking to me. I don't, rem- I, I was just so out of it. And she mm-hmm. said that we had had a conversation and she asked me if the spinal tap hurt. And I guess I told her it hurt really bad. They do. And I didn't remember it. So thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, did they take you back home before you stopped breathing or... Did that yeah, I went back at the home hus- and oh. that was when they realized something like I was sick, but they discharged me thinking I was going to be okay, that I had some bad virus or something. But the, the, the spinal tap came back that it was rare white blood cells. And because of that, they were saying, well, you know, it could be this or, you know, and they mm. said, because she's on antibiotics, masking, whatever it is. So they, they just didn't address it. And I progressively got worse at home. And my friend the next day um, left work early to come check on me. And she realized I was in grave danger. She called the doctors and said she's in a lot of pain. 
she has labored breathing, you know, please, you know, tell me what to do. And they said, Oh, just go get this medication. It's a pain medication and give her that and wait and, and wait. Insane. (laughs) It was. And yeah. yeah. And so then she just said, okay. And so by then that, that night we, it it just came down to, I've got to get, I told her we have to go to the hospital um, now. I said, I am, I'm dying. I could feel my body shutting down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, It felt like somebody tied a rope around my waist and it cut off the circulation from my my waist down. And it was extremely painful. And they finally, they got somebody to come over and help with my kids, which uh, took a lot of begging and pleading with the ombudsman. She came in to take care of them. And um, my friend drove me to the hospital uh, on base because it was the closest place to go because I was in trouble and you could see it. And I stopped breathing. I died in her car. Um, and she said, she just, she flew through the gate at the base and, um, I guess they, they took me out of the car. They said I was dead on arrival, no pulse, heartbeat. Mm. I wasn't breathing. Now, and, at that point, at that point, Kim, did you, were you out of your body? At that point I wasn't, I was basically just, I don't, it was just black. Okay. And then when they, they brought me into the uh, emergency room and they were reviving me. I was above my body in the room and I could see them doing that. And I could see my friend crying and just beside herself. Mm. And they had a bag on my face. They were cutting off my clothes and they were pumping on my chest. And I never left the room. I was just above my, I just was there watching everything. And at some point I came back before you came back into your body, did you realize that you were dead? Did you try to talk to the doctors and say, hey, it's okay, I'm up here? I mean, this is just something that some NDEers have gone through. I was mad at them for yelling at my friend and saying, please don't yell at her. It's not her fault. Uh, please. She, you know, she's trying to, she tried to help me. She's brought me here. And that's, I was just upset and I was, but then I was even more upset when I fell back into my body and the pain was back. Yes. Oh boy. And I, I was, you know, just fight, trying to fight them off me and, and they were just yelling at me, screaming at me to breathe, breathe. Then I just went, I just, I went unconscious again and um, they transported me to the same hospital that didn't have a bed for me the night before. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were very upset. Some of the nurses, I remember, walked up to my husband and my friend, apologizing. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. So your husband was back by that time? Well, this was after. My friend had oh, reaccounted uh, what the, okay. the staff. I sh- I'm skipping around. I'm sorry. I'm trying to stay. <laughs> well, Let me stand okay. fast. You were out of your body again, second time, right? Tell us what happened then. The second time I was at a university hospital, they had transported me because they said that they had put everything but the kitchen sink in me and there wasn't anything else I could do. So they sent me to a teaching hospital in Gainesville. Hmm. And there they had me in the OR and I was in a coma for three weeks. So naturally, I don't remember a lot, but I remembered feeling a stabbing pain in my neck and my chest. And apparently I was in the OR and they were doing a procedure to me and I was hemorrhaging and I died again and they lost me and I was above my body again. And at that point I actually went beyond the room I was in. I went 
to another place, a very bright place, like a, it was beautiful. It was a garden. Before Mm -hmm. that, though, there was a a place, as I understand it, you felt like you were behind a cinder block wall? Yes. Most of my NDEs were dark, uh, but that was the only brightness, the one I was just describing. Right. uh, Mostly it was, I was sitting in this room with a cinder block wall, and it was really dark, and we were just sitting waiting, and I wasn't alone. There were Mm -hmm. other people with me. This sounds very much to me like other descriptions of uh, what, the Catholics would call purgatory. It's a place of yes. waiting and re- it's not necessarily a life review, but it's a, a waiting for a blessing of some sort, an expectation of forgiveness. Did you feel yes. that way? And the other people that were sitting there, did you have any connection with them at all? I honestly did feel that way. I felt I was in purgatory, that I was mm. trapped. Um, mm. I was in this place and I, w- I wanted to break through, but I I kept getting motioned to to come to another place, and I didn't want to go, and I just would sit there and say, I'm just going to wait. Who was motioning you to go? I thought they were angels, like, waving me. They were very enticing, like I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And I just, I could hear voices behind me saying, don't go, don't go. It's not what it seems. They're not what they seem. Just stay, just wait. This sounds like a kind of a a dialogue between good and evil there. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're sitting there wondering, are those angels good or are they bad? And is the voice good or is it bad telling me not to go? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you resolve that? You just decided not to go. I dug my heels in and said, I'm going to wait right here because uh-huh. I need to see my children. I could see them and they were in pain. They were crying. They wanted their mother. I think you also said at that time that you were in this dark area that you were hearing prayers. I was hearing prayers. It, it was just this beautiful melody. And then you could hear voices saying, I don't know who you are, but I love you. And it was just over and over and over again. Hmm. And it, it was very soothing to me. I found out later after I recovered that people were praying for me all over the country. They had prayer circles. Nice. And it was nice. very nice. Did you hear prayers for any of the other people that were there with you? I did. It was just an overwhelming presence. It was really soothing because everybody was that was there, they also had their own problems. Like they're great they were gravely ill or injured. And it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't a pleasant place to be, but everyone was quiet. Hmm. Like me. We just kinda were waiting. You know, I think this is so interesting and and important because Listeners should be aware of the importance of prayer when someone is is in trouble or has just recently died. I mean, the Tibetans pray you all the way through the bardo and and the bardo and purgatory. You know, if if you overlook the cultural dissimilarities, they're very much mm-hmm. the same place. In fact, I think they are the same place. So prayers are so soothing to someone who's in trouble on the other side. It's really important that we uh, we do that for people. Yes, very much so. So then when did this breakthrough come where you were suddenly going into the light? And did prayer have anything to do with that, do you think? I do. I also felt like I had those episodes where I was above my body, but also the bright, very few bright moments, but I remembered them. Um, like the garden, when, I, when I, they lost me on the table, Tell us about that. What did that look like? It was just a beautiful place. Like 
you'd imagine, you know, beautiful gardens and just green grass. And were just, there other people there? Angels? There was just one, just one person sounded, uh, was a familiar voice, a friend that had just passed on. And she, uh, maybe six months before me, uh, she said, Hey, come on over here, sit with me. Come on, let's just sit here. And I, I said, no, I have to go. I, I just have to go. I can't be here. I said, I love it, but I have to go. And I, I went back hmm. and I was back. You know? <laughs> so she was inviting you to stay though. She wanted you to stay on the other side. Yes. I felt very hmm. much welcome. And did you feel like you had that choice that you could have gone I the did other feel, way? I did have that choice, but I didn't want to be gone. I didn't want to be, I wanted my, to be with my children. So that was my, that's the only thing I could focus on. Now the garden, did it have, did you see any other beings in the distance or trees, forest, animals, perhaps? Just trees, flowers, and just very peaceful, very mm -hmm. lush, but no, no other people. Paradise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you think that the prayer that you were hearing when you were in this dark place might have given you that vision, given you the chance to see it for a moment. I do. And I don't know, people say that when you're in a coma, uh, medical professionals, they sometimes feel like she's not here. She's, she can't hear what we're saying. And I could, I could hear conversations. And uh, I had a, a visitor in my room with my husband. I looked over at him and he was, he had his head in his hands. And there was someone talking to him, telling him that his grandfather was ready to pass on. His grandfather had cancer and he died while I was in that coma and I knew it. And I, I could hear him telling my husband and my husband was ignoring him. And I remember thinking how rude he's ignoring him. He's talking to him and he's not listening and his grandfather is dying. And, and then, you know, like I said, after I came out of the coma and I was able to speak, I told my husband I was sorry about his grandfather. And he just looked at me like, how would you know that? And it just freaked him out because there was, that was never spoken in the room. I mean, it was never something that they discussed in, in my room at all. The being that came to visit <clears throat> your husband to tell him about his, uh, his uh, father's father or grandfather? Grandfather. Grandfather's um, passing. Was that, was, was that, was it a man or an angel or what, what sort of being was that? To my, to my, what I, I felt he it was a male uh, and I felt like they were, he, he was glowing sort of, he was very, he had a light around him mm -hmm. um, and he had his hands in his pockets and very casual while he was talking to my husband. Huh. And of course your husband couldn't hear him, but you. No, he could, he couldn't see him or hear him. Um, mm. It, it. Did to he this day when I, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Did he acknowledge this, you? Go ahead. No, that's okay. I was going to say, did he acknowledge your presence overhearing the conversation? Yes, yes. And I just kept saying, can you listen to him? And are you, are you listening? And he just didn't, speak. my husband didn't respond. Uh -huh. But yeah, to this day when I tell him that, he just, he gets really emotional. I can understand that. You didn't see the spirit of your grandfather, though. You knew that he was dying or that he had died while you were in your coma, but you didn't have a chance to say goodbye to him. 
I didn't. No, I didn't see him. And you had written, uh, which I thought was amusing. You thought, how rude <laughs> your yeah. husband was being <laughs> to ignore this glowing man. <laughs> yes, uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first were recovering from this, did you try to share what you had seen with uh, any of the medical staff? I did. And with what um, results? <laughs> the results at, in the hospital were, oh, you were on some really heavy drugs or uh, you were, dear. you've been through a lot. And I, then I sought out counseling after and the therapist said, well, whatever your perception of heaven was, you must have brought into your experience. In I other words, didn't. your brain made it up. Right. That, that's it was kind of dismissed. And I just felt like, OK, I'm going to stop talking about this because people they just get it's freaked out. They get freaked out. And I didn't want to make them uncomfortable. So I just didn't talk about it for a long time. My husband, I talked to him, but even, you know, he, it was hard for him to hear as well. Were either of you raised in a religious tradition? My husband was. My husband was very, um, he was raised in a Lutheran background from Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I was, when I I was born into a Catholic family, however, we never practiced uh, religion in any form. Both my parents were very, I guess, I I don't know, I felt they didn't believe in organized religion, although (laughs) I was baptized Catholic. They were married in a Catholic church. They had some, um, I guess they had some issues with the Catholic church and kind of fell, fell back or as you call a fallen Catholic. (laughs) So, and at 31, you were probably not attending mass or anything like that. Um, I had converted to a Lutheran. I was uh, actually, we were belonged to a church by, you know, close by um, in our, in the town we were living in, in Florida. So yes, we were practicing. And did you try to tell your pastor about your experience? I did. I did talk to him about it. He was very receptive. I w- he was oh. very kind. Oh, good. Yes. So at least you got one person who at least was comforting to you, even if they might yes. not have fully believed the, mm-hmm. what you were saying. I find it so interesting that you wound up doing work, basically what I, I was a hospital chaplain for 15 years and talked to ND ears whenever I had a chance because they were not getting any comfort (laughs) from the medical Mm -hmm. staff, from most medical staff. If they got any at all, it was usually from a nurse. There would be one or two nurses who were familiar with the NDE experience and and would be very interested and solicitous and understanding. But it was rare and so disappointing. It is rare. You you said you wound up in therapy because you found this whole thing very upsetting. It was. It was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time with it. Um, it affected our marriage. My husband was like, who is this woman? And where did you come from? Because I was different. I was. I came back. I was stronger. I stood up for myself. I had nothing but time to sit back and reflect on my life. And this is something I used to say all the time. I hate my life. I hate my life. After After that, I just didn't say it anymore because... I felt like I shouldn't say those things because karma will get me, <laughs> you know? Well, too, you also saw the, the big picture, which is that, you know, our life here ends, but it doesn't end. It goes on. It doesn't. That gives perspective. There was a lot of self-reflection. Mm. I think Did it made f- me better. 
It made me stronger. Good. That experience in the in what we were calling purgatory, do you feel like it was a a, a message or a warning as to how you might change your life when you came back? I did. Mm-hmm. I was really, you know, I was working hard. I had my children. I was extremely busy all the time. And I didn't socialize a lot because I had, you know, I was being a single parent with my husband being out of the country. I had to do everything. And so I had, I didn't have time for lots of things. And so I was always my family. That was my, that was all I cared about. So yeah, it was a self-reflection because I felt like this is a place where you have, you have a second chance. You have to think about what you would change or what you want to do better, how you want your life to be. Mm. My empathy level is, I just, I feel other people's pain. I don't, it's hard for me, you know, to see somebody hurting emotionally or physically. I don't know. I'm more in tune to that. I have more intuition, I guess you could say. Sure. Well, just the, um, you had said you'd had, difficulties with relationships and anxiety from the NDE. And then those memories would cause you distress and anger and fear. And, but mm-hmm. you, it sounds like you worked your way through it. I did, but it was, it took a lot of therapy. It was, it was a multitude of, you know, I was self care when you're, you're struggling with something like that. You need to have somebody that you can trust that you can just unload on and, and talk about it and not be judged or thought that you're crazy so. Did you tell your children about uh, your experience? I did a little bit. My daughter, she's old. She was the oldest. She was nine. My son was four. So he has no, he has a little bit of memory, but not. So we didn't really, I've never really talked to him about it. Um, he knows I was sick. He's young. Yes. What did your daughter think of what you told her? She thinks it's really neat. She likes to hear it. But at the same time, um, in growing up, there were times when they just didn't, it, it was too painful for them to hear. So I didn't talk about it a lot. Mm. It was very traumatic. My daughter, she also had to have therapy because she witnessed a lot. She had some PTSD. She was afraid to go to sleep at night because mommy will get sick again. And I think it's the way the adults handled it on the other side when they that were taking care of her while I was sick. It was a traumatic event for her because she has a lot of memories. And how is she doing today? How old is she now? She's 33, and she is amazing. She is a flight nurse, amazing flight nurse. She wanted to go into healthcare because of what she saw happen to mom. She wrote a paper to her college, and they were so impressed, and they thought it was so profound what she wrote that they uh, they wanted to hear about it, and uh, she talked a lot about it and that's why she went, went into medicine and she's not just a, a flight nurse. She is critical care certified. So she is really good at what she does. Wow. She's mm-hmm. on a helicopter, a helicopter. Yes. A life flight, life flight. Yep. They transport critically ill patients or she actually goes into like remote areas in the middle of a field and intubates a patient that's in trouble. I mean, she's saving lives. These are such amazingly skilled people, the critical care workers on helicopters, because mm-hmm. you never know when the thing's going to pitch or roll or do something, you know, weird. And you're, meanwhile, you're dealing with someone in life-threatening situation. So they yes. are so skilled. I mean, 
to intubate, for instance, or to uh, put in a an IV when that sort of thing is happening. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. It requires an enormous skill. I I was always so admiring of the of those workers at at my hospital. You know, you came full circle because as stressed as this event made you feel, you say later that you became a person who was regarded as a calming presence, distraught families, that when you were working um, in spiritual care in the hospital, that mm-hmm. they would call you in because you could calm people down from the situation yes. that you had They would come through. and sit, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They would come in and sit in my office, the families, and just unload. And I just sat with them and listened to them, and it didn't bother me. My boss said that that was my ministry, was just sitting with these distraught families. And I, you know, I, they had a shelter. We, the Arbor house was a, a place where we housed um, patients, families, or even patients for that matter that were receiving chemo or radiation therapy treatments. And it was just a safe haven for them to go lay their head and get some rest. And a lot of times they'd be like, no, no, I'm going to stay in the room. I'm going to stay in the room up in ICU. And it's like, how much rest do you think you're going to get up there? You need to decompress and just close your eyes, and have some quiet. Have, have some space to yourself. A lot of times they would listen and they would, they would take the room and they would go over there. I just felt great. It was a huge honor to be part of that. It is. It was my niche. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. You know, it's so amazing. This very distressful NDE that you went through wound up making you a healing being. It brought out the loving spirit in you and it also gave your daughter a, a direction in her career mm-hmm. because, as you said, it was your what you went through that made her want to be uh, in medicine. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a phenomenal story, Kim. And uh, I'm really proud of her, yes. <laughs> well, and I'm sure she's proud of you as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Kim, oh, yes. we are out of time for today. Well, if anyone would like to... Uh, get in touch with Kim or send her an, a note of some sort, you can email me, Lee Whitting at Gmail, and I'll forward it to her. Kim, thanks so much for sharing your story of your NDE. I think the part about the purgatory setting is really important and not to be uh, minimized to listeners. Not at all, yes. Because that had as much mm-hmm. to do with it as coming into the garden and influencing the direction of your life. Mm-hmm. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our nearly 400 past shows, just go to NDE Radio and hit the Past Shows button. For more about IANS, go to their website at IANDS.org and listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs> 